In one week, folks, we'll be releasing our latest audio documentary, Escape from Inglewood. This story is on Tony Davis, who rose above the violent streets of Chicago's South Side while pursuing wrestling greatness. And man, I cannot wait for you to hear this story. All three episodes drop next Monday, April 25th, on this podcast. The trailer goes live on Wednesday, so stay tuned for that. PMA, positive mental attitude and and definiteness, definiteness of purpose, understanding what you want, what you're shooting for. Those are two big ingredients for success. And we can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's, 5% 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. Go to SpartanCombat.com to shop merch from the great Yanni D, David Carr, Kylie Welker, Vito Oruja, SpartanCombat.com. Folks, this episode is with the great Uriah Faber, the California kid, one of my idols in the mixed martial arts game for decade plus. I mean, this guy gave recognition to the lightweights, and was the first one to do it. Uriah is in the UFC Hall of Fame. He's a former WEC world champion, and he's a two-time national qualifier for the University of California Davis, rest in peace, wrestling program. Really appreciate Uriah making the time to come on this podcast. Fan of the week goes to our friend Keith Gothard. That's Keith underscore Gothard on the gram a supporter of this show, a fan of wrestling. Thank you very much, Keith. We appreciate it. Now let's give it up for the California kid, Uriah Faber. Uriah Faber, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks for having me, man. Excited. Is that a Mike Mike Tyson on Sports Illustrated? Yes, sir. I have that too, somewhere. I have it up in my, my gym up in Point Arena. It's like a private gym. That's a great picture. Dude, it's legendary. Yeah, it's uh, it's good vibes for the office. And, you know, I, I looked at, you know, the whole uh, trajectory of your career to kind of start this thing. I love how going into your freshman year at UC Davis, no scholarship offer, and to get ready, you go to like J-Rob and uh, like this junior college training camp. Talk us through yeah, like yeah. your regiment that summer. So I was kind of a late starter when it comes to wrestling. I, uh, I mean, considering a lot of my peers, I had, you know, Chad Mendez, TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt and uh, all these wrestlers that started when they're 
Lance Palmer started when they were like four, five, six years old. Uh, I started when I was in the seventh, eighth grade around there, kind of, you know, getting my foot in the door at that point. And uh, really camps were in camps in double seasons doing freestyle uh, were the thing that made me catch up really. So um, I just kept that mentality from the get go. I was always playing chase. I got beat up pretty good in my first couple freestyle matches and um, didn't really understand the rules per se. Cause I was just going to compete. I wanted to compete. And uh, yeah, I, I lost to four guys my senior year in high school. And, um, <clears throat> and three of those guys ended up going to UC Davis at some point in my weight class. And so um, I was just going hard. I, I went to Jay Robinson and then I went to, um, to the junior college, Sierra college. And I was doing all their conditioning and, and just, you know, I figured everybody was doing that, you know, in college level for me, I, I like to hype things up. Like it's going to be this big monster. And so I was preparing for the worst, like, you know, like, you know, someone's training when you sleep kind of mentality. And so I went in and was just, you know, way ahead on on conditioning and you know three of the four guys I lost in my senior year ended up coming to, to Davis and I was you know blowing them out of the water when I when I got there and um because I had that that constant need to get better and thinking everybody's doing more you know and it turns out everybody wasn't doing more a lot of these guys that started when they were young and and they were in season and out of season and I was just in season you know and that's kind of carried me through the rest of my career. And, and when I meant to the guys and everything else, kind of talk about that mentality. Yeah. I love how you like, you didn't get psyched out by it though. Right. Cause a lot of guys would see that like, dude, all three of those dudes beat me. They're coming in. We're probably going to be around the same weight, but just kind of reminds me of your book. And, and one of the first rules you have in there, positive thinking breeds success. And that's obviously something you've carried with you to, to motivate you through those trainings. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, PMA, positive mental attitude and, and, uh, and definiteness, definiteness of purpose, understanding what you want, and what you're shooting for. Those are two big ingredients for success. And, um, you know, I was just believed that, believed that I could, and then had to put in the hard work and it's trial and error. You get knocked down, you got to get back up and reassess things, make a new plan. And, um, you know, I did my homework that, that summer and it paid off for me. I ended up, uh, you know, for the varsity spot, my next year, I was, I was, uh, you know, the guy to go to and, and held that spot my entire career and, and then went on to coach there and, and had a, had a decent wrestling career there. Uh, but as a late starter, I was just kind of getting started really. What'd you pick up from coach Zaleski in your first year there? Man, Zaleski was, you know, the lineage was from Gable and, and so, <clears throat> you know, the biggest thing that I learned from, from coach Z, both as a coach of mine and, uh, and then I coached alongside him was first and foremost, uh, the things that were said before and after practice were really important. And I had, you know, not really experienced that in the past. I had some great coaching, but, um, it was like the discussions had before and after practice that were the new thing. Cause I had a, a coach uh, prior to Zaleski in my college career. And I think it was about half halfway through where I got coach Zaleski. And, and I just really liked that, you know, b- building the mental side of things and, um, you know, addressing problems, cancers on the team or, 
or, or, you know, talking about what went well and what went, went bad and, and choosing topics to, to hit on as reminders for the day. And um, just really the mental, the mental side of it was, was big. So he wasn't your coach from the get go. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I've had a, um, Mike Birch was my coach originally and he was a great coach as well. But uh, when I saw the, the, the difference there was, was first off, you know, coach Z when he came in, it was, you know, he'd been, he'd been shopping around for other places to go. I think he, his family wanted to be in California and, um, you know, he just, the first thing he did was in a practice, we went in and, and he goes, all right, guys, shake hands, get your partner. We did warm up. And then he goes, all right, 30 minute go. <laughs> and, and like, everyone's like looking at him all confused and like, whoa, what was that? 30 minute go. Like, it was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, 30 minute go, go. <laughs> and, and then you look around the room and, and in every group, there was like one guy that was broken and the other guy that was on top. And that kind of set the precedent for uh, things being a little bit different and the mental side of the game, you know, and Birch was, was a, a, a great coach as well. Um, but there's just a little bit of an edge on, on the mental side of things that I think was handed down from the wild man, uh, Dan Gable. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the, you know, Coach Zaleski's brother, one of the greats in the 80s. And, you know, when you were at yeah. UC Davis, he was he was at Iowa still. So, yeah, that had to be a, a big jolt. And then you finish as UC Davis's all-time wins leader. When, now, when you're graduating, are you thinking, I'm going to be a high school coach, I'm going to run a club, or are you already dead set on going MMA? There wasn't really a big opportunity at that time for mixed martial arts. There was no weight class in the UFC. It wasn't like a set out thing. Like this is what you do. Like now wrestlers, this is a viable route they can take to make a living with the skill they've acquired. At the time, there was no weight class for me. The lightest weight class was 170 pounds. And uh, I basically was just banking on, faith in the sport that it was going to grow and thought, you know, this thing's just the beginning. I could see kind of the future in that front. Um, and I was just doing what was fun. I, I mean, I was getting paid like well below the poverty line to be a coach and I was bussing tables and I was coaching kids at wrestling camps. And I worked at Hitchcock as a veto wrestling camp and I worked uh, coach Leslie's wrestling camps and, uh, Mark Munoz started having a camp, the West Coast camp out, 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 uh, you know, in SoCal. And, and then I was, I started my own little business TLC top line coaching. And I was, um, going around to, to all the different high schools and junior high programs and, and trying to rustle up money and selling t-shirts. And, and so <laughs> I was just, you know, I was making, I think a guaranteed seven or 8,000 bucks to, to coach at UC Davis full-time 10 months a year, like full-time days. So, uh, you know, you can imagine it wasn't, be, it wasn't a decision on, I was just having fun. I was wrestling and doing the fight game. I made 200 bucks to show up the first time I fought 200 bucks to win. And for me, that was a lot better than 11 bucks an hour being a uh, substitute teacher. And, uh, and so I just kind of continued down that path and kept on like not worrying about the future. And ironically, that's what got me to where I am today. And what was the, uh, <clears throat> what was the fight where you, initially quit doing everything else and just banked on fighting to be your sole source of income. 
you know, I had a lot of little things that happened that helped me out a little bit uh, throughout the, throughout my journey. A couple of years in there was, there was some developers and young guy uh, who decided to sponsor me. And that took a little weight off of the, uh, off my shoulders. And I think that was like maybe three or four fights in. And then I was, I, I, I started my entrepreneurship like pretty early on. I started, um, you know, selling t-shirts and I was doing the coaching thing. And so I was finding a way to make ends meet and learning about entrepreneurship, like by throwing myself in the fire, not even realizing what I was doing. I was just making it. And, and so, um, I had like two businesses right off the bat that I didn't even think of as businesses. It was just like, you know, I got a fictitious business name statement and started coaching kids for the wrestling. And I ran one of the camps that Zaleski had through my business. So all of a sudden I had all this money come in, even though I just got to keep like a thousand or 2000 bucks of it. And, um, and so it, it hasn't really stopped like that. My entire career, <laughs> I've been juggling a lot of things, you know, and I grew up doing that too. So it was like, you know, two households and, you know, it was good in, good in academics and I was playing sports and I was also doing acting and modeling when I was a little kid. My mom had got us into that when we were young. And so I was always like juggling a lot of things. And I just think I've continued to do that, like maybe too much sometimes, like until today. Dude, how much did your parents starting the coffee shop when you were in high school impact your kind of entrepreneurial spirit? Looking back, I would say that's the big igniter, but even more than that, um, both my dad and my stepdad were not great business guys, but lived their own life. And, and, you know, and that's why I do what I do is freedom of, of my time and energy and effort. My dad was a, a, a framer by trade, but uh, a contractor and he was a skilled guy, not, not, incredible in business, but he could always make a living and made his own, you know, his own called his own shots, finish a house, you're done. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then my stepdad, Tom, he had had a couple different businesses. Uh, he had one gardens of Eden where he had in the back of his house, he had all these pools that he was doing, um, water lilies. And before that he was mowing lawns, in the fabulous forties and his hands were always bright green from mowing lawns. But, um, I saw, you know, that type of mentality. And then my mom and my, my stepdad, Tom started the coffee shop and that had a lot of success. They put their heart and soul in it. It was about four or 500 square foot, uh, place, but really, really high quality stuff. We were, I was just thinking about that today. It's funny you asked because I got a bunch of strawberries off the side of the road. And I remember all through junior high and high school, just cutting strawberries at the house and putting them in bags and freezing them for, for, for smoothies. And then we'd have to go this place for gelato. Cause they had the best gelato. We'd go this place for the croissants. Cause they had the best croissants and this place for, you know, the bagels and the baked goods. And like, we had a real quality product and a passionate, you know, kind of group of us family running it. And, uh, it was the first time we actually saw like some money where we weren't struggling. Like, you know, you have to hang our clothes on. We still did, but we didn't have to hang our clothes on the, on the wire versus putting them in the dryer to save energy. And, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, I, those kind of, those kind of moments were like, you know, man, we, we kind of, we're doing well at the, at the moment, you know, we can use the dryer. <laughs> yeah. I can use the dryer. Tom <laughs> complained about it. <laughs> but so you were like actively involved in running it or not running it, but like helping out and like working there. And, and like you said, cutting strawberries and whatever you had to do. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, I remember my parents left, had left town at one time and I was, you know, into my I think junior and senior year. And I was responsible for getting, uh, getting the baked goods at like four or something in the morning. And I had also, there was like some event I really wanted to go to. It might've been like a party or something. And I was like responsible, but I still like to have fun, you know? And, and I remember staying up all night to go be at that, that event with my high school buddies and then driving first thing in the morning and, and going to get the, the baked goods. And sometimes at night we'd be in the, in the gym, in the, in the coffee shop till 11 at night, you know, making sure things are perfect. And, uh, and then go back to school. And, and then on the same side with my dad, I was, I was pumping lumber from, from, from young, you know, fifth, mm-hmm. sixth grade. Like I was there as a runt being told what to do, like picking up nails and throwing trash and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So the, the, the work mentality has just been ingrained in me. And like, even like when you were WEC champ, you know, I, I watched the series you did, I think it's called like Warriors of the Cage or something. Yeah, like Warriors Nation, yeah. Old school. Yeah, I was watching it this yeah. morning. And I'm like, dude, how are you running all this stuff in training? I mean, were you like juggling business and training like like your whole career basically? You know what's crazy? Um, it doesn't feel – it didn't feel like that. But in retrospect, I was. I also had a guy, uh, uh, Poppy's Martinez. I just talked to him yesterday. He, he was – uh, a guy that was kind of like a sponsor, but I became like a trainer mentor for him. And, and his tribe helped me out a little bit. It was like all these lucky things were kind of happening, of course, with the hard work mm-hmm. to where I was able to be a full-time athlete, even though I was doing 16, 17 hours a day of whatever to get things done, but it felt like I was full-time, you know? And so, um, I, another thing was before one of the reasons the economy crashed in 2007, eight, was because anybody could buy a house at that time. So I bought a house just because I thought I could, you know, just, Oh, I'm going to get a house. And like my buddy, uh, Yosef was a Egyptian, you know, loan guy. And he was like, dad, I'll get you a loan. I'm like, all right. Like, what's your income? Seven grand, seven grand a year. And what, how about, what's You want to buy a house for 300,000? No problem. So I was like, you know, I don't know how stated income loan through the business that I had started that I only got to keep a couple grand, but 40 grand went into it. I had a work history because I was uh, a coach and trainer, but I, but I had gone to school to be a teacher. Like, I don't know how he got it done, but I got, I got a loan in 2004 or five where anybody could get a loan and most people defaulted and, and had trouble at that time. And I just filled the house with a bunch of fighters and, and we're all, you know, helping pay the bills and, and, you know, carpooling to the gym. And, and I just, you know, was staying busy and barely squeaking by the skin of my teeth, but just loving what I was doing. And is this how the, like the block of houses eventually started? Like, cause like at some point you had how many houses and like how many guys were living on your block or in your house at the thick of it? Yeah. We haven't talked about that in a while in interviews just because people forget, but I, I really started, like the first little commune of fighters. And, and I bought that first house, moved in a bunch of guys. Like five uh, or like 10 guys, you think? No, more like five guys. And uh, Matt Sanchez, he was a two-time All-American. He came and lived with me. And TJ Dillashaw lived there at one point. Lance Palmer and uh, like, you know, the list goes on of all these different guys that lived there. Um, Dustin Akbari, who's, you know, a jiu-jitsu world champ. And, I, and so I had the first house and it was, you know, bunch of guys living there. And then 
I started making a little bit, bit of money and my best friend, Tommy, who wrestled at Escalon and UC Davis with me, him, and my other buddy Virgil bought a house next door. And then we bought another house next door to that. And then we bought another house next door to that. And our other buddy bought a house. We had like five houses Dang. in this community over 10 years. We had probably 70, you know, between 30 and 70 fighters that, that had lived in those different houses, coaches and stayed there for, uh, stints of, of time. Like a lot of the fighters in the UFC that aren't on our team have come and stayed before they were in the UFC. Cause it, we had this like train with Tam program and, um, it was a really cool time actually. And just a hum humble little neighborhood that was safe from burglars, as you can imagine. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, just everybody with a like-minded mentality working towards what they wanted to do. Yeah, when you guys had like a cookout or a block party, the energy must have been just off the off the charts. Yeah, it was awesome, man. And like mm -hmm. I said, like the first house I bought, I overpaid for it in 2000, whenever it was uh, at the time. And so it was a humble little home, but uh, I put in a really nice pool and spa as soon as I got enough money. So it was like ghetto fabulous. And we had the pool and spa in one house and like the barbecue and sauna in another house and we had we had a really fun little environment at the time. It was cool. That's amazing. And yeah, just think about like you know better than anyone, all the dudes that have come through there. And like it's just even like yeah. you said, guys that weren't team alpha male, you know, just coming through and training. That's that's amazing. Kind of like one of the first, it kind of feels like an OTC, but for fighters a little bit, you know? Yeah, it really was. And and uh and because I was world champion at the time, also. It was like a, it wasn't like I had a secret that I was trying to protect and I wasn't intimidated of anybody coming there. So a lot of guys that I even fought later and my guys fought down the road had, had come through the, and trained and crossed. And it was kind of like an open door thing. Like, you know, you got to invite show up and, and, uh, you know, I, I think probably four guys that fought Scotty Jorgensen, Brian Bulls, Charlie Valencia. Um, I think maybe Eddie Wineland, uh, quite a few of the guys that I, ended up fighting hit at least step foot, the Pettis brothers, mm -hmm. at least step foot and hung out. And that's actually guys like clay. Yeah. Clay was always my buddy and he just loves good environments. And so he would show up and hang out for a week or two, like he does all across the globe. <laughs> and, and, uh, then he, when he decided he, when he decided he wanted to show up, he showed up with his, all of his stuff and was just like, Hey, I'm here, and, you know, but we, we hung out long before he ever was part of the team. Does he have a camper cool. out there right now? I don't think he does now. I think he's got a little place to stay. Actually, my buddy Mike, Mike want to fight uh, uh, Peterson. He has an Airbnb and Clay has it set right now. So he's, he's sitting pretty. He's got his blue beast out here. And, nice. You know, it's funny. I had a bag of Clays in my garage for like two years. And I did not know what it was. I thought it was kind of my stuff. I'm like, this is my stuff. I don't know. And I realized that he just had, he puts bags at people's places so that he's a nomad. <laughs> like drop like, bags? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so that he has, uh, you know, when he comes back, if he comes back, he's got some stuff there. <laughs> I love his like take on life. It kind of like jives with your, you know, importance of freedom. I mean, that's like the freest dude I've ever met is, uh, is oh, like, freedom, yeah. man. he's just, living it um yeah at the illinois state tournament a couple of years ago pulled up and i saw clay's camper there and i was just so excited to get to riff with him for a little <laughs> bit he's the best let, oh, let, me, man. let me ask you about this one man i love uh i love that 
this ADCC story is kind of how your nickname came about. And maybe you can correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but I was, again, going through the book. How did you, like, how long had you been doing jujitsu before you went to your first Abu Dhabi? Maybe your only Abu Dhabi. That was my only one. Um, about a year and a half. And what had happened was, um, you know, I was current world champion, some small organizations, Gladiator Challenge, King of the Cage. That happened pretty quick. And then um, I was still getting paid dog shit, really. It was, it was, you know, I was selling tickets. That was where I make most of my money and selling t-shirts. That's how I make some money. But, um, you know, I was getting a couple grand here, a couple grand there. A thousand bucks was a big deal back mm -hmm. then for a purse. And I saw online that you could do a grappling tournament and make 10,000 bucks. I'm like, what? So I, so I emailed <laughs> the guys and I'm like, Hey, my name is Uriah. I wrestled in college and, and I'm currently fighting for these organizations and I'd like to do your tournament. And the guy got back to me and said, okay, yeah, we'll get you in. And I didn't realize that was a big deal. I told my jiu-jitsu instructor, he didn't believe me at the time. He's like, ah, no, you have to go. I can't even go. I have to go back to my hometown and compete in Brazil to even get an option to be able to go and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, they said I could go. He's like, no, no. And I said, so I pulled up the email and I said, yeah, I'm going. And then he's like, oh, what? And like, it was a big deal for him, you know? And uh, so this is the actual there. ADCC or like a qualifier? Yeah. Oh, no, it's the actual ADCC. Holy yeah. smokes. And so, uh, so then I, uh, I didn't, you know, I was already training really hard anyways. And I had just come out of college. So my, my wrestling was on point. So yeah, I get there and it's like, or, uh, Tito Ortiz is in it. And, uh, you know, Frank or who's, who, who I can't remember. They had all these, these high, high level fighters that were in this competition. I was like pumped to be there. And Quentin Rampage Jackson was my buddy at the time. And he was, you know, I used to watch him fight and he would come to my little events for the gladiator challenge and stuff. And he was like, man, if I were you, I'd, I'd take that, uh, that California vibe and like take it to the bank, like cowabunga <laughs> and hang loose and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, really run with it. And he's like, you, you know, California and like basically the California kid. And then, uh, then I gave Gilbert Melendez was competing in that competition as well. And there was a bunch of people from all over the world, uh, China, Japan, or Japan, Brazil. And, uh, and I told him, good luck. I said, Hey, good luck. Do it for, uh, do it for, uh, for, for USA. And he said, he said, F that do it for Cali. And then, uh, <laughs> and then Bruce Buffer asked me my, my name. He was the first, he was announcing that competition. He's like, no, it's Uriah. How do you say that? And blah, blah, blah. It was before I fought in any events he was announcing. And then, uh, and I said, uh, I just came up with the, the California kid at that time between Quentin and Gilbert and, uh, repping Cali and having Bruce announcing me and everything. That was the, that was it. That was the one. That's sick, man. So is this like when Marcelo Garcia's still going through there winning this or like who, who was the guy yeah. along your way? Um, uh, what's his name? He was a really good wrestler, wrestler, Brazilian wrestler. Uh, what's his name? Oh, I'm blanking at the moment, but I have my first, I won my first match against Pina from American top teams coach. And then I, um, lost my second one to, uh, to, uh, Marcos Feitosa, who was the champion, the weight above the year prior at 170 pounds. Wow. And so, yeah, he was, 
I was putting the the Iowa style wrestling just club and heads and fighting him because the first five minutes there's no there's no points in the second the second portion there is mm-hmm. and then seven minutes in I had his back ish and he did like a he was like six foot one he stepped over and took my back and submitted me is the only time I've been submitted in competition but wow. um, he told me afterwards he goes man you're the strongest guy I've ever wrestled or have gone against at any weight. But it was really just because I was doing the, like the club in the head and arm dragging. I was just purely trying to get him fatigued, you know, mm-hmm. for the first five minutes. Just some hand fighting. Um, Dang. Hand, hard hand fighting. I love it. <clears throat> I know you, uh, you got a fleet there on your hands. I just wanted to, there's a couple other things I wanted to ask you about, but we'll close down with this, man. I love your take on how a lot of the successful people you've met are delusional in a way and they embrace it. Like what's your, uh, yeah. Like, how'd you come to that? Yeah, I do. Well, that's two things. And, and, and as I started doing more interviews that talk about, you know, right. Just like my coach coach did talk before and after practice, but like the delusional guys, like a Conor McGregor, um, you know, the guys that do big, big stuff in any, any realm, really just believe the impossible and just it's reality to them, you know, and delusion is delusional, you know, depending on whose opinion it is. It's no, no longer delusional once it happens. So um, that's the other thing with excuses. Being, being a guy that makes excuses and a guy that is delusional, uh, those are two really good things if you're doing it correctly, you know. Delusional to where you don't have a chance and you're being unrealistic, like, man, I think I could – throw the football, my football over the Yosemite, you know, like obviously there's some limitations, human limitations, but you know, people do incredible things. There's always somebody that's done the thing that other people want to do. And so why not you? Right. And, and so uh, I encourage people to be as delusional as possible. Think about things that, that other people may think are strange or uh, you know, seem impossible. And, And then on the excuse side, a great excuse is one that's fixable. You know, it's, you know, what, what's your excuse for, for getting beat by this guy? Oh, he's just a lot stronger than I am. Okay. Well then you need to get stronger. Well, he's, you know, technically here, if it's just, well, you know, just he's better than me or he's, you know, he's been doing it forever. I'm not going to catch him. You know, those, those are the, the closed minded thoughts. We need, we need stuff that's fixable and a good excuse is one that you can fix. Right, Romy? Which is something you don't hear a lot, right? You think, you know, you hear excuses like a, like a four-letter word almost, but then hearing your take on it, thought it was interesting. So I figured I'd get you just to kind of expand on it a little bit. Yeah, no excuses is, is you know, I love excuses, right? And, and, and even, and I've seen some of the best delusional people give the wrong excuse, but if they really believe it and they go work on it, and then they believe that they're going to win because of that. That's more important than, than making an excuse because the self-belief part is the more important part. It's not. And so even if you're a little bit delusional and you've made an excuse, it's the wrong excuse, but you really believe that because you're delusional, you're going to have a better chance of winning. <laughs> like really. It's crazy to, you want to go see Callie? Go it's see crazy her. to, uh, it's crazy to think that that's true though, because think about your situation, man. If you were you know, a senior in college and someone would have said, 10 years from now, you'd be one of the most, how there? (laughs) 
one of the most recognizable athletes on the planet, they would have said, no, you would have said no way, you know? So like you had to be that way. Yeah. Hello. And I remember, I remember, uh, I remember uh, having some delusional thoughts <laughs> as I was Amber. I think they went outside. You want to go see them? Let's go. I remember uh, uh, when you're working at wrestling camp in Hitchcock as a wrestling camp and I bought a Datsun B310 for like 300 bucks and uh, I got the CD that plugged into cassette tape yeah and, yeah yeah with the cable uh, coming out yeah the cable coming out I was playing the CD that this kid got me it was like you know I'm gonna be bigger than the Beatles and bigger than Brussels plants you know like singing the, the this song and I just envisioned being like this this staple in the sport when there was real no opportunity and uh and I can just remember how real it was for me, even though I was slumming it after right. an amazing summer out, you know, teaching wrestling and hanging out in one of the most beautiful places in, in California and uh, just being euphoric about the future, even though there wasn't a set future. And that's the delusional, that's the good delusional stuff. I love it, man. Yeah. I love your presence and, and optimism. I know we'll let you go, man. It's It's been an honor to chat with you. And thank you, Clay Guida, for setting this up. Thanks for working with the kids, man. The, yeah. These are the best. These are the best investment right here, man. Absolutely. I can't wait for you to, to, to partake. It's Thanks, brother. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. You can find video clips of this interview on YouTube. Search Wrestling Changed My Life. And all past episodes are available at WrestlingChangeMyLife.com. Thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Combat. Go to SpartanCombat.com to shop exclusive merchandise for Yanni D., David Carr, Vito Arujo, Kyle Dake, and Kylie Welker. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.